You are listening to The Mark Milton Show with a Smash. Hosted by former Department of Justice Tax Division Attorney Mark Milton, the STL tax lawyer. Here's Mark Milton. I should have been a cowboy. I should have learned to rope and ride. I'd be wearing my six right now. Yeehaw, you're listening to The Mark Milton Show with the Smash and Solly broadcasting from the Miller Furniture Studios presented by stltaxlawyer.com. Miller Furniture, remember, three locations, Belleville, Lake St. Louis, and in Ellisville, 1.2 miles east of Clarkson Road. And we found out from Mark Miller, owner of Miller Furniture, they also now offer RV furniture. So if you have an RV, Uh, like myself, that needs to be outfitted with some new furniture, they may be able to hook it up at Miller Furniture. But they also have, as you know, Smash, everyday dining furniture, bedroom furniture, living room furniture, really anything you need for your home, you can get it at Miller Furniture and you can get it customized, or you can buy it right off the floor and have it ready for immediate delivery. Would you get from Miller Furniture, like your dream, a waterbed in the back of the RV? I don't think anyone wants a waterbed these days, and I certainly don't as, as somebody who... Have a waterbed? I never have. It's not something... Frankly, I don't know if I could ever get out of an, a waterbed at this point. It's very difficult. The worst. To, to roll, to <laughs> roll the worst. But if you want great furniture, Smash, when we're doing a oh, live yes. read for a furniture oh, company that <laughs> doesn't sell waterbeds, yes. you should check out Miller Furniture, M-U-E-L-L-E-R Furniture.com. Smash, we have a very special guest yeah. in studio, in the Miller Furniture Studios today. I have his book in front of me, uh, Mr. Jeff Smith. Jeff, welcome to the Mark Milton Show. All right. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And I'll just start out by saying whoever thought up the idea of waterbeds is a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. That's a great point. So is Smash. So anyway. Um, so as you notice, I said I have this book in front of me. And I'm not going to lie to you like some talk show hosts do and say I've read the book. I'll admit to you I have not. I actually just got it in the mail. I'm very excited to read it. And frankly, you see these talk show hosts and they have guests on that author books. And they always say, oh, I've read your book. Oh, no, yeah. they haven't. They haven't. I mean, are you kidding me? You have a guest on every you year. Don't have that time. Right. So I'm not going to lie to you, Jeff. I have not read it. I've read the inside cover and the back cover. Sometimes and I can't wait to read it because I kind of know a little bit about the story. Um, and I don't really know you that well. I mean, we've met, like, you know, we have a lot of mutual acquaintances. We saw each other uh, last Tuesday in Jeff City, which I got to say, they had an event for uh, Senator Roy Blunt. And I was so um, encouraged by the amount of bipartisan. Uh, showing of support there was for, nice. for Roy Blunt. Claire McCaskill came and gave oh, yeah. some really nice remarks about him. Um, I hope it's not the end of an era in terms of statesmanship, but it was a really cool event to be at. Which it was a great event. It was the probably the best attended event I've ever seen in Missouri politics. There must have been almost a thousand people, Whoa. you know, packing that Whoa. room. Yeah, and you know, there might have been six hundred fifty Republicans and three hundred fifty Democrats or something like that. You know, basically the ratio of the state at large. But the point is that um, the the tone of the event uh, from both Senator McCaskill and Senator Blunt was basically just exhorting the legislature and statewide officials, guys, like, don't get so, take everything so personally. Yeah, these are important fights and it's important to have principle, but we got to get stuff done for people and you can't let these these petty personal grudges right. get you know get in the way of what we're supposed to be doing up here. So ho- hopefully the message was well taken, and literally within 24 hours you saw the logjam in the Missouri Senate begin to break a little bit. So I, I would have to say it wasn't unrelated because a lot of the people in that room were there and, and you know are in the legislature now and they, they're doing a lot of good things. And it was nice to see just 
I don't know, especially with war going on now, you know, yeah. Russia and Ukraine, which my heart goes out to what's going on there, the, all the suffering. But, uh, you know, it definitely was an inspiring thing to see people able to come together, celebrate somebody who has been a dedicated, whether you agree on him with him on, you know, policy or, or partisanship, but um, just a guy who's worked really hard for his state yeah. and, and for his country. We're going to miss him, man. We're going to miss him a lot. You, uh, how old is he now? Probably about 70. Oh, yeah. yeah he's in his 70s. And I think uh, Smash and I actually had lunch before the show over at uh, Subway. That's actually where Smash and I met was at the Subway, Subway. in De Pere. Yep. We rekindled our romance in a booth there. And I got to say, those <laughs> booths, I mean, I don't know. I think that we've gotten bigger since we met. The but booths I mean, were tight. When you're leaning over eating yeah. your sandwich, I mean, you're almost kissing. That's how close. There's not really much space. No, luckily you said almost. <laughs> Smash having his, <laughs> having his salad. And I got to, I'd be remiss if I didn't call him out on this. So I'm sitting there and I see Smash. Oh, oh no! <laughs> Smash pulls into a handicap space and saunters in. He saunters into the subway, and I said to him, "Smash, you got a handicap sticker?" And he said, "Oh, oh yeah, I got the I got the hanging thing. I just forgot to put it up." I said, "You gotta watch yourself doing that if you're not gonna show some sort of limp." I had forgot sort of <laughs> show a limp. <laughs> I have a really bad diabetic case of what's called sure. neuropathy. And the neuropathy, when it really grips you, it makes it difficult to, to walk. So, so maybe, on those days, maybe on those days, you use the space. And on days where you're sauntering in, like you can skip, you uh, leave it. Leave ne- it. Never <laughs> lunch with you again. So no, I'm just kidding. Never. All right. Real focus today. Jeff Smith, his I, book. I'm handicapped in that way. <laughs> you are. You are officially handicapped. You oh, have yes. a sticker. I'm not trying to call you out. To the book, something. please, sir. Um, but I'm sure Jeff would wonder, where are the authorities? Why aren't they coming after Smash for, <laughs> for uh, parking in a handicapped spot when he's, you know, I'm able to walk? Okay, the the you doctor are, said, speaking. you need a handicap. I'm not sure. Right, I, I'm not going to fight you on that. Let's just segue by saying I went to prison for a lot less. For a lot less. I have something to say about that. All right, so Mr. Smith, Here we go. Mr. Smith Goes to Prison is the book. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, I guess I haven't, I haven't read it. I know the story, though, and I want I want to hear it from you because, I mean, you were, uh, I remember you were a state senator. Um, you, when I guess when I was, what year was it you announced you were running for Congress? I ran for Congress in 2004 okay. and then lost very narrowly and then came back and ran for state senate in 2006 and got elected. Okay, and so you're serving in the Missouri, this just kind of tell us your background, how you got into politics first, you know, b- before your first congressional run. Yeah. So um, I was always just kind of interested in wanting to make, uh, you know, the city a more kind of equal place. I was always really interested in in kind of racial justice issues and, and growing up uh, as a, a guy who played basketball and was you know, the only uh, white guy on most of my basketball teams. Um, I just was fortunate to spend a lot of time, uh, more time than I think most people in the city spend during their childhood, you know, crossing the lines that really divide the region. When I, I went to college, I majored in uh, black history at the University of North Carolina, came back, worked in St. Louis public schools, um, ended up uh, co-founding a group of charter schools uh, in, in the city uh, called Confluence Academies, which now have about almost 4,000 students, and uh, went to get a PhD in political science. Was just about to finish my PhD when Dick Gephardt announced that he was running for president, left the congressional seat open, and decided I was 29 years old uh, to do something crazy as a total nobody, uh, which was announcing a run for, for Congress. 
And um, my family thought it was the most ridiculous idea they'd ever heard and refused to support me. My mom's exact quote was, if I hear that you're asking any of our relatives for money, I will disown you. you this is going to <laughs> humiliate our family. Um, my grandma, who was at that point about 95, she was in a bridge game and one of her bridge partners received a solicitation letter from me, brought it to the bridge game right at the start of my candidacy and said, Ida, your grandson, he's running for Congress. Where do I send him a check? And my grandma replied, if I were you, I'd save your money. <laughs> so running against in a 10 way primary against Russ Carnahan, uh, the obviously a congressman yeah. with, uh, a, you know, a, a person with a, whose family had a proud heritage of public service. His father, of course, died tragically in, in a plane crash when he was a governor just about 10 days out from his U.S. Senate race. Uh, his mother, Jean, succeeded, ended up serving right. in the Senate. Um, his grandfather was a congressman uh, and ambassador. His sister, Robin, was our secretary of state. So um, juxtaposed against my family where, you know, my uh, dad had been a uh, golf coach at WashU, sports information director, wrote for the Sporting News, you know, just kind of a small, small business guy. And my mom worked with kids who had special needs. So I was a total nobody when I announced. And that's something people don't realize, I think, in politics. I mean, I ran for state rep in 2016, very naive, didn't really know what I was getting myself into, running against an incumbent, Dev Lavender, who had been running for like 10 years and had all his name ID in the area. Not that Half the people know who their state rep is to begin with. But for a state rep, she had incredible name ID. And that's yeah. what you don't realize, Smash, is like name ID, regardless of you're like a total scumbag. It doesn't like that name ID means something in politics. Right. And so it's a lot to overcome when you don't have that. Smith, obviously not a household name. So it's you got to really go out and work it to get people to know who you are. Yeah. And, you know, I was so blessed uh, in that first campaign. I had... 18 full-time interns, uh, most of whom were my former students because I'd been teaching at Washington University uh, in the political science department, and they were the lifeblood of the campaign. We knocked on doors every single day um, at the at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, every single night. We all had dinner together, and I'd just go around the room and ask, hey, what you know, what's it like in the 8th Ward? What's it like in the 10th Ward? You know, what are you feeling down in Afton? And, you know, getting that instant, you know, literal real-time feedback uh, it was better than any pollster could give you, right, to know how I'm doing in different neighborhoods, what messages yeah. are working or not working. So those kids were amazing. Thanks to their efforts, uh, we came from being, a, you know, total nobody to actually getting very close. Uh, but about three weeks out from Election Day, I, I did something really stupid. One of my uh, aides came to me and said that he had been approached by a third party, uh, like kind of a hanger on, kind of a bottom feeding political consultant who said that he wanted to put out a postcard about Carnahan's attendance record, which was dismal in the state house of representatives. Instead of telling my aide, you know, that seems a little fishy. Instead of even saying, <coughs> can you look into this guy's background a little bit? I said, look, I don't want to know what you guys do. And my aide said, well, what does that mean? Does that mean we should give him the voting record? you know, Carnahan, the information that we have. And I said, hey, are you stupid? What did I just say? I don't want to know any details, okay? Just don't talk to me about it. And that was that. My aide did what I tacitly was suggesting he do, which was he printed out the information about Carnahan's voting record and gave it to the guy. I didn't think anything would ever come of it. And then about a week from election day, 
I called a press conference myself alongside one of my other opponents, Joan Barry, and we gave a joint press conference saying, hey, Russ Carnahan's a nice guy from a great family, but he didn't show up for work and he doesn't deserve to be in Congress. The next day, a little postcard came out with the same exact statistics that I had cited during the press conference, only it lacked the requisite paid for by disclaimer that all political males supposed to have, which opened it up to a complaint with the Federal Election Commission that Carnahan filed. On election night, I was winning most of the night. I won St. Louis City. I won St. Louis County, which was about, you know, three quarters of the district. But I got the crap kicked out of me in Jefferson County and St. Genevieve County and the more rural parts of the district. That gave just enough margin for Carnahan to beat me by about 1%. And so wow. when I woke up in the morning, I had narrowly lost. A couple days later, I met with Carnahan. I asked if he'd drop the FEC complaint because I knew that we had done something fishy, although unlike my host, uh, Mark Milton, I didn't know the finer points of campaign finance law. <laughs> and uh, about a week later, my lawyer prepared an affidavit in response to the initial Federal Election Commission inquiry. And I looked at the affidavit. It had 15 statements. 14 of them were true. One was not. But I willed my hand to the paper and I signed it, stating that I didn't know anything about the postcard, rationalizing it by saying, well, I told my staff not to tell me any details. So I didn't know the answer to this question of exactly who printed it or produced it or whatever. And I signed five years later. Uh, my former best friend came to me and said, hey, the feds had knocked on his door and they wanted and they uh, he hadn't spoken to them, he said, but he was afraid they were going to ask about this postcard that he had had some involvement with five years earlier. This I, is your your top aide or is it this a different is my, person? This was my former best friend okay. who was in, then in the state house. I was in the state Senate. OK, they're and, coming around five years later. Well, four years and about nine months later. Wow. Because the statute of limitations on the sure. underlying crime was wow. five, five years. I had no idea it was that long. <clears throat> and yeah. then, uh, you know, we talked about it for the next couple months constantly. Uh, dozens of hours of conversations about it. And little did I know that that entire time, my best friend was wearing a wire. Oh, really? Wow. And so he got me to, uh, you know, admit that I had had that conversation with my aides, that I had been aware that my aides had given the voting information about my opponent to this third party who put out the postcard. That constituted a legal coordination with a third party. And then my signing the affidavit uh, was, a, was a federal felony. So I ended up having, you know, um, the only way I could have gotten out of going to prison would have been uh, to wear a wire on other uh, political actors who, who the feds are interested in. Mark, you know intimately how this works, uh, having worked at DOJ. And um, I decided uh, not to do that and ended up pleading guilty and serving uh, a year and a day in federal prison. Well, and I imagine the alternative to wow. not only not, you know, wearing a wire, ratting out other people or quote unquote cooperating would have been facing much stiffer charges potentially. Was that what was threatened of you? I mean, that's the common... You know, the DOJ could throw the kitchen sink at you if you don't agree. Because you pled guilty before indictment or was it after? I pled guilty before indictment. So, I mean, I was I, I didn't have like a whole array of things they couldn't they could have thrown at me. I wasn't like one of those monsters who like pretends to be handicapped to get a closer parking space. You know, <laughs> oh, <terrible>. um, <laughs> so 
terrible, both of you. Ah, terrible. So, I got a video of it. Don't worry. I'm going to post it on social media later. I got a great video of Smash sauntering into the subway on his cell phone. Hollywood on his cell phone, walking quite ably into the subway. The doctor gave me that. I didn't even ask him for it. He said it would help me. But I mean, part of that discussion, and I've... I'm a monster. I have had clients facing criminal charges, pre-indictment, post-indictment. And one of the scary things is with pre-indictment, you can control things a little bit more, right? So you have the ability, I assume you were, your lawyer was negotiating with the prosecutors. You can sort of craft a guilty plea and a charge that you're going to plead guilty to versus if you don't cooperate with the, not, and I'm not saying cooperation, but if you don't agree to plead guilty to something, you lose a lot of control. They could theoretically try to come up. They could probably trump up a mail fraud charge, wire fraud. I mean, these federal prosecutors have a scary amount of discretion. It, mm-hmm. They really do. I've talked about my client in Springfield who there was a two-year-long yep. FBI undercover investigation. They thought that he was going to lead them to some drug kingpin. He didn't. He didn't. And, in fact, he reported all of his crypto trades on his tax returns, which at the time nobody was doing. So they literally had very little case except for the undercovers that he was selling Bitcoin to made overtures to the fact that they were selling cocaine. So they could theoretically yeah. have charged him with conspiracy to traffic drugs, yeah. even though, oh, by the way, they weren't drug traffickers. They were undercovers yeah. lying about it. And he never believed they were actually drug traffickers. But again, it's that real fear of a hammer being dropped. So you plead guilty to one count. What was your expectation when you pled guilty about any sort of prison time or whether you would actually go? Yeah. So, you know, it was one of those things we we went in, you know, you know, this process again, uh, better than than 99.9% of the population. But we went in for something called a proffer, which is where you go and you explain to them you know, what you did and, and you're basically admitting, hey, you know, here, here was the whole crime. Here's here's what I did. You know, they had played the tapes for my lawyers and me to kind of say, hey, here's the worst stuff we have. And I walked out of that meeting before I made the decision. I, I walked out of that meeting. I said to my lawyer, hey, how bad is this on a scale of one to ten? And he said, eh, two, two and a half. I said, really? So you think we can beat it? He said, eh, you know, maybe. He said, you know, just you just need to hang a jury. And I said, okay, how much is that going to cost? He said, you know, a million bucks at least. Oh, really? And I said, so what happens if we, I said, and to hang a jury, we just need one? He said, yeah. Uh, I said, well, what happens if we do that? He said, and then they come and they do it again, and they try to get you a second time. And I said, so it's $2 million? He said, no. He said, the second trial is a lot more expensive because they have to spend, you know, a long time disposing of all the motions related to the first trial. He said, so if your first one is one to one and a half million, the second one's probably two and a half million. He said, all in, you're probably talking three or four million bucks. Really? And I said, and and I was about to run for re-election. I was literally had just announced for re-election. The thought of running for re-election while under indictment and then going to trial and trying to raise millions of dollars for a legal defense uh, for an uncertain outcome... (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, you know, it, it was basically, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge decision. But I thought, you know what? If I cut my losses now, admit what I did, and you know, do my time. So I just had to make a decision. You know, do I gamble that I can hang a jury, or do I decide to cut my losses, admit, you know, everything that I did, and just own it, and uh, hope that I get, you know, maybe a light enough sentence, maybe not have to go to prison. 
and then I can turn uh, turn the page and start a new chapter in my life. But and if I may jump in there, the third option also is go to trial and lose, and that's the scary proposition: is you spend the money to go to trial, you lose, then you lose credit for cooperation, credit credit for accepting responsibility, which people don't realize. And then, I don't know if you talk about this in the book, but you know. The ability to fight federal charges is further compounded by the fact that the penalties for even trying to do so are so severe. They call it the trial penalty, right? Like if you force the feds to go to trial and spend a year or two going through all that, then they push for the harshest possible sentence. And usually a judge will will tend to side with that. And so who most of which are former federal prosecutors, a lot of them. So exactly, exactly. So knowing that if we went to trial, I would lose millions of dollars And if I potentially lost, then I could get a a three or four or five year sentence Um, when we, you know, we negotiated and and we kind of had a range uh, that I thought was likely. The range was, you know, one and a half to two years or so. I ended up getting a year and a day. We had, you know, 300 plus people wrote letters to the judge on my behalf. Uh, You know, lots of state senators, the mayor, the attorney general uh, basically said, hey, like, could this guy get probation? We prepared a sentencing memo that asked if I could just teach for two years and coach basketball. I'd, you know, coach basketball for over a decade and just say, hey, for free, he'll teach at, you know, the charter school he co-founded. Taxpayers would get a free teacher and coach for a couple of years. That's a hundred thousand bucks, would save another, you know, a hundred thousand bucks or so by not having a guy go to prison. All in all, taxpayers would, you know, it would be like a net win of about mm-hmm. a quarter million bucks for taxpayers if he could just be on home confinement you know, never leave home except to go to work every day. Uh, unfortunately, the judge, <laughs> you know, the prosecutor was furious that I hadn't worn a wire or done more kind of cooperation to, to help them nab a bigger fish. And so uh, he pushed for a harsh sentence, ended up getting a year and a day. Huh. So you, at that sentencing hearing, you know, you go before a judge and you're basically, like you said, there's usually a guideline range that you're based on the offense level and different characteristics of the defendant. But, I mean, you kind of expected you were going to get some some time based on the the guideline range. and But you were obviously asking for probation. So just walk probation. us through that moment when the judge says, I hereby sentence you to a year and a day. What was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I expected it was likely that I would get prison. The uh, prosecutor in my case, this guy named Hal Goldsmith, um, he wouldn't even shake my hand during the proffer, he, he wouldn't even look me in the eye. He, you could fit what he knew about politics inside of a thimble. When he sat with me to argue about, you know, what he had believed that I had done, uh, he had all these wild theories of crimes that I had aided or abetted or was aware of that had happened in Missouri politics. They were all just ridiculous. He was must have just spent nights uh, up in bed dreaming of the various crimes that politicians were engaged in. But he was insistent that I must know about all these things. And the fact that I wasn't outlining them in great detail to him, in his mind, was evidence that, you know, I was culpable of of all these other things. So just based on his attitude during those conversations and his just, you know, misperceptions of how politics actually works, I suspected that 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 kind of disconnect was going to lead him to push for a harsh sentence. And I understood that I I didn't get a very, um, the judge who I drew in the case was 
typically one who was seen as being pro-prosecutor and not very good for the defense. Uh, so based on that, those atmospherics, I was suspecting that I'd probably have to go to prison. And I know how. How I actually have a lot of respect for how, but I, I, as a, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in your shoes. Um, and certainly, you know, I do think certain attorneys, prosecutors have a different way of viewing politics, and you know, kind of view everyone as being bad. And that's certainly not my view view of things. And I think how, uh, like I said, I like how he's, he's, he's I think. For the most part, is a really good person, and I can't speak to what all took place in your case. But ultimately, so he's fighting for prison time. But and, the, and he's and, but, putting in the information, which is what you plead to. He keeps adding things that I didn't do, that he had no evidence that I did, because he needed to make me look like more of a mastermind right. in this great conspiracy, because he probably knew how flimsy the whole thing was. And, yeah, I fucked up. Yeah, I shouldn't have done what I did. But most people in Missouri politics, regardless of party, uh, I think agree that that uh, that it was a little bit of prosecutorial overkill here. And his, you know, just continued work during that uh, process to add in things that were totally wrong. And I knew they were wrong because I was there for all of it uh, just to make me look more culpable. And frankly, which made me spend thousands and thousands of dollars more money just to try to make the the thing that I pled to actually accurate, which, you know, I had to plead to some things that weren't even true because it was costing me thousands of dollars every week yeah. just to go back and forth with him Jeez. when I already knew that I was going to plead guilty. What was prison time like for you, man? Because you see it on TV and everything. Were you lifting weights all day, trading food in a mess hall? What, what was prison life for you? So I was working, you know, I worked uh, in a warehouse on the loading dock. In prison. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Well, hang on. Back. So so let's talk about how he got. So you go to, like, where's where do you go? How do, I, I'm curious well, about okay, that. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah. That process that's good. of, like, going I just want to go straight to the yard, but you're right. Because <laughs> there are a lot of different types of facilities, and I've been to some of these. I've been to uh, pretty heavy maximum security, but I've also been to what they refer to as FCI camps. I don't know if you're familiar with this, where these guys are able to walk around. Like Frank Fantangeli in The Godfather, man. Well, they're literally like they're able to walk around freely. You appear to have been in a pretty high security facility. Yeah, I mean, I was in a place that was a low security place on the same compound as a high security place. So everybody... Uh, we had about um, 2,500 people overall at FCI Manchester. And most in the low security facility had come down down the hill from the high security facility uh, where they started their sentence. Once they got within 10 years of the door, then they could come to the low security facility. So it was probably 99% drug dealers. Really? Um, about two-thirds of the guys were there for crack. Uh, about a third were there for oxy or meth. Yeah. So there were like maybe five or six white-collar offenders, uh, you know, um, at, at Manchester. And um, I sometimes associated with them, but my main crew were the guys <laughs> who you see on the back of the book. Um, yeah, this is a great – this, this photo is just hilarious. You got Jeff standing there. A crew of seven. What do you? I'll tell you. I mean, short, shorter than them. Let's put it that way. These yeah, guys so, are towering over you. So when I got to the joint, um, I was, you know, I weighed 117 pounds. Oh my gosh! And I had um, a little, 
and I'll never forget my intake. You know, I was down in, in Appalachia in Clay County, Southeast Kentucky, got to the intake and the uh, middle-aged woman, she's like, you know, name. And I said, Jeff Smith. She said, hot and weight. And I said, you know, five, six, 117. <laughs> she says, education level. I said, PhD. And she kind of raised her <laughs> eyebrows. Last profession. I said, state senator. She said, all right, you want to play games? You can play games all you want. Oh, we really? got ones in here to think they're Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I ended up uh, about a week in, they found out I had been jotting notes on toilet paper and napkins because I was hearing such interesting things. And I thought, you know, someday maybe I would write a book about this, you know, but I definitely want to keep a journal of this experience yeah. just so I remember what it was like. And, and they found out that I was doing that and they brought me down to the admin <coughs> building and the deputy warden uh, gave me a whole lecture about how I was breaking prison rules. And I said, you know, I looked at the handbook and there is no prohibition on keeping a diary. Like I know there's a prohibition on like selling contraband or, and, and he said, he accused me of running a business, uh, having a business endeavor out of the prison. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, you think you're going to get rich off all of us and write yourself a big best-selling book, don't you? And I was like, look, my interpretation of the handbook is that, you know, I am just keeping a diary, not monetizing it, not selling it. I certainly will not make any money while I'm in this institution from this, if I ever do. And he replied, is that your interpretation, inmate? Because I got some news for you. This ain't no consent and this ain't no in Supreme Court. And if I think you's conducting the business, you's probably conducting the business. And if you ain't, then we'll throw you in the shoe for six months while we figure it out. <laughs> the shoe is like solitary, right? Yeah. So um, I definitely, uh, and then 30, 30 minutes after that, I got my work assignment, which was working on the loading dock, you know, just a 40-hour-a-week job, unloading all the uh, you know, rice, beans, sugar, flour, meat uh, that came into the facility, which comes in, you know, the meat was in 60, 80 pound boxes. Uh, the flour and beans and sugar and stuff is in 100 pound sacks. So those were the six guys on the back of the book who I worked with. They were like 260, 270, 275, 305, 315, and 350. That's a big dog over there on the right. And uh, those were the guys that I did most of my time with. Wow. How do these guys gain weight in prison, man? I'm figuring they ain't eating all that good. Where were where they getting weight from, man? So, you know, most of those guys are pretty muscular. So you're lifting all the time, is that right? What it is? Yeah. Um, most people lift. They're all muscle weight. Yeah, I mean, you know, they fill you up with starch. Yeah. Right? They're yeah. not giving you, like, nutrition. That's they're, right. They're giving you starchy foods. But there's a healthy market, a black market in prison for, really? for protein. Really? Right? So... And I was a part of that, and I detail this in the book, the entrepreneurial endeavors of those of us who worked in the warehouse, because we had access, we had the first access right. to the food that came in. So suffice it to say, not all the best stuff made it into the kitchen. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, what awaited you when, you when you were done, man? What was your first meal? Did a bus come and pick you up and take you back to civilization, or how did that all play? My... Um, my then girlfriend, uh, now wife, oh, uh, right. came came and uh, at that point, well, 
baby mama I would probably be the, the more accurate term um, right when I got out of the joint uh, because we conjugal visit was that a result no, of a conjugal visit no but I <laughs> but we do think it happened within 48 hours of me leaving the facility <laughs> oh, really? <Fair> uh, <laughs> sorry for crying year sorry to day <laughs> anyway um, she came and picked me up and uh, we went and we got a gooey butter at the Walgreens oh no kid at the Walgreens yeah at yeah. Wow. Um, and you know what the funniest thing was? We got there. This is one of my favorite stories from the book. And the guy who had delivered milk to the facility was delivering to the, the drugstore right then. And he sees me walk out of the store with a, she, she, had, she had brought me a gooey butter from like MacArthur's. Yeah. And I went in to go get, uh, a little pint of milk and I was walking out of, of the Walgreens and I see him and he sees me and his eyes, he froze thinking that I had escaped. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty wild. Cause that's he had been good. seeing me for the whole last yeah, year when right. I had unloaded all the, all the milk coming wow. into the facility. So you wow. get out. So, I mean, that's you spend a year a day. I mean, in, in federal prison, when you get sentenced to that, there is no, Early release or, or probation. You're, you're doing you're that. doing eighty five percent of your time okay, so, I, I, at least. Okay, so that's what you did eighty five percent. I did eighty five percent. Okay, and when uh, I want to, I'm just fascinated by sort of what you experienced while you were in there in terms of the types of criminals, the types of crimes they committed. You know, you had guys that maybe had committed. I mean, what was the most serious offense, and and you know what were what were some of the surprises in terms of people who were in there and what they had done. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty much overwhelmingly drug dealers. Uh, you, to get into this facility, there was a kind of a running joke because we didn't have, you know, the people up the hill were those who had, you know, committed worse crimes uh, for, for, the, for the most part. Or they were just other drug dealers who um, hadn't gotten to their 10-year mark yet, right? Because of mandatory minimums uh, with, in federal drug statute, Everybody gets like a 10-year mandatory minimum pretty much. And then most have a gun on their case, right? They find a gun in your house or your car or on your person. So that's another five years automatically. Then if you were selling the drugs like close to like a school or uh, a park or, you know, depending on, on other factors, you get like another two-year enhancement. So most of these guys had like 15 or 17-year sentences. They did their first five years up the hill. And then when they got to, you know, nine years or whatever, then they could come down and be at our facility. I'd say that, you know, so one time we joked since they were to get into ours, they had to not have gotten into like terrible fights or whatever up the hill uh, for, for, for the most part. And so we joked one time about, hey, you know, these are, I know, you know, you guys are all nonviolent guys. And uh, one of them joked, He's like, man, the only reason they call me nonviolent is because every time I shot, I missed. <laughs> but they were they were overwhelmingly like good people. They were entrepreneurial. Yeah. They were savvy. They were um, doing the best they could to survive in an environment where like my wage was five dollars, 25 cents. And that wasn't an hourly wage. That was a monthly wage. So you're working 40 hours a week for $5 a month. Wow. So I wasn't like most of these guys in that I could get 100 bucks wired to me whenever I wanted. Yeah. Right? I was never wealthy, but, and I certainly, you know, Hal Goldsmith and his team took a big chunk out of my 
my net worth uh, with the legal fight, but I still had enough money to, to go buy peanut butter from the commissary, to buy toothpaste, to buy shampoo, to buy deodorant, the necessities. Most of these guys didn't have people sending money in, so they needed a hustle. And that's why people were, you know, doing what they were doing at the warehouse, stealing chicken, stealing vegetables, you know, saran wrapping it onto your body before wow. you get back, uh, go back to the yard and then selling it every day. Other guys had totally legal hustles where like they would just, one guy drew artwork and he drew pictures of, he drew for me one for seven stamps, a picture of my wife uh, and our dog that I sent home for Valentine's Day. Um, so there were totally innocuous hustles too, but then there were very illegal hustles like guys who smuggled drugs, who smuggled weapons in. Um, you know, they tried after they saw me in a basketball game one time and noticed that I was pretty fast. They offered me 250 bucks to go and just run and get a duffel bag and bring it back, huh. literally like 30 yards. Uh, and I was not tempted. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good call. Probably a good call. Um, so in terms of uh, friendships and, and other things that you made while you were in the joint, as you called it, I mean, some of these guys, maybe maybe you're still in there. I mean, there were guys that maybe you're, you know have gotten out. I mean, have you stayed in touch with any of the guys that you, uh, you were in there with? Yeah, I've stayed in touch with uh, four or five of the guys that I was mm -hmm. in with. Um, one of whom is, you know, a close friend, you know, back here in St. Louis and uh, now sells cars. So anytime any one of my family or friends needs a car, I always send you them. Go over there. Yeah, uh, send them his way. Um, and then one of my cellies, I had two cellies, the first one I got in a fight with. Uh, and then. This what was that like? What's a cellie? Cellmate. Oh, cellmate. Okay, I didn't get it. Yeah, he, I was on the top bunk and he said that uh, there was a cracker hair that fell down into the bottom bunk that he didn't like. Um, he was very meticulous about hygiene. One of the things that you see in prison, there's, you know, you can't control anything. You can't control where you are, obviously. Right. You can't control when you eat. You can't control when you wake up. You can't control who you interact you act with. You know, you're, you're thrown into this situation. The one thing that people can control is like this seven by eight area is going to be the way that I like it. And it's going to be clean as a whistle. So given, you know, the fact that uh, a lot of people have known someone else in prison who died from like a staph infection or something like that, people are pretty obsessive about cleanliness. And, you know, I was stressed. Uh, I was hitting middle age. I lost some hair during that time. And one of them apparently fell down into my celly's bunk and he didn't like that. So uh, he initiated a fight over the uh, cracker hair. Wow. <laughs> so this is like in your room? You guys get, get into a little... Yeah, where do you fight? In, in the room? Uh, yeah. And so anyway, it was broken up. And <laughs> I, I uh, subsequently was able to get a new celly, and that one and I stayed in A lot smoother. That's good. Um, wow. So, I mean, this is something I'm curious about, because you, you get out of prison, you're still, you know, in my opinion, like a likable guy. You have a lot of context in St. Louis. You're able to sort of get back into society. But I think for most people, once you have that felon tag on you, it can be very difficult to go back to life outside the prison. So how did you make that adjustment? And you know, what, what challenges, what struggles did you see others have with trying to make that transition back to, you know, regular life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so when I got home, 
I had every advantage compared to 99.9% of people that come out of prison in this country. I had a PhD from a great university. I had a physical home that I could live in. I had support from family and friends. Like I said, I had 300 people who had written letters to the judge. And so I had, you know, contacts, references. I'm white. In almost every one of these ways, I was advantaged compared to most of the people I did time with, pretty much all of them, most of whom had a GED that they earned in prison, maybe a high school diploma, most of whom didn't have a single job reference when I helped other guys with their resumes, didn't have a single professional reference they could list who wasn't like a relative, most of whom did not have a home, a physical place to go home to. So I had a pretty good. And, you know, when I interviewed for my first job to consult for a small, affordable housing nonprofit, at the end of the interview, the vice chair of the board said, you know, you've got everything we're looking for for this job, but why shouldn't we hire someone else and maybe then hire you away in like a year or so from whatever else you're doing once the aroma has begun to wear off a little bit? If that's the question that someone like me gets in an interview. Imagine what it's like for most people coming out of prison who don't have home, don't have uh, any stability in their life, may not have clothes to interview in. Um, We shouldn't be surprised that two out of three people in this country who are incarcerated end up rearrested within the first few years. We should maybe be surprised that one out of every three somehow managed not to, given all the obstacles that they must overcome. So I was so blessed. I got that first position. Uh, Then I soon after that was offered a job uh, as a professor teaching in a public policy graduate program in New York City at a university there. We moved uh, to New York City where where I worked for five years and wrote the book and uh, had got the chance to speak to state legislatures throughout the country about the mistakes that I'd made to try to prevent other people from making similar mistakes. Uh, And um, and then came back to Missouri after five years in New York to work in the reentry space at a nonprofit and try to help other people uh, get the kind of second chance that I got, but most people don't get. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that you hear come up a lot is the, the ban the check the box. And I, I have mixed emotions about that. I think if somebody wants to know whether somebody's been a felon or not on a job application, I personally think. If it's not a box that they can check, I think they have a right to know that. So how do you balance? I mean, that's a common prison reform or criminal justice reform concept you see out there. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And you know, how do you balance that with the employer's right to know whether or not somebody's been a felon before? So ban the box doesn't remove the employer's right to know. Okay. It only says that on the initial application, you can't have them check that box, which then rules them out. You can still under ban the box later in the process, conduct, you know, a, a check and, and learn what the person's background is, but it can't be used as an initial filtering mechanism to just dismiss someone who's ever done that before you even begin the, the, the interview process. Well, I, yeah, I would say right now, given the job market, people probably could care less if somebody's a felon, they just... Need bodies at a lot in a lot of different industries, so it may be a good opportunity for some. In in the decade that I've been out of prison, I've been involved in you know reentry in one capacity or another uh, ever since, and this is the best environment we've ever had to persuade employers 
you know, to, to hire formerly incarcerated people. So if you're an employer out there listening to this and you're interested and you need bodies, then please feel free to, to shoot me a note at jeff.smith at slu.edu, slu.edu. Uh, I help out a, a nonprofit housed inside of SLU called the Transformative Workforce Academy and recruit companies uh, and, and help um, identify resources uh, for the program to help men and women who were incarcerated, federal, state, county, uh, get back on their feet with employment. Very cool. And tell us about what you're doing now. So you're the executive director for the Missouri Workforce Housing Association, which is, a, tell, us what, tell us what that is. Yeah, we fight for uh, production, whether through new construction or rehabilitation of safe, affordable, quality housing uh, through federal and state policies, primarily the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, which is about a $150 million state program that subsidizes construction of decent housing that'll last uh, but ensures that the people renting it will pay be well below market rents. It's basically saying poor people shouldn't have to live in, in squalid poverty and slums. They should have a just not a fancy place, but a decent place to lay their head to help them have achieve employment stability, family stability, and the other things that can um, facilitate upward mobility in life. So if you, if you were running again, how would you handle prison reform? What would you say to prison reform? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the, the day that I go down to the courthouse to file for office again, yeah. I will I will bump into my wife there filing for divorce. So <laughs> I don't see it happening. But if I were, you know, I'd want to kind of separate it into three buckets. The first prison reform bucket is sentencing. Yeah. And I'd want to work on sentencing to make sure that we don't, you know, I think the war on drugs is ridiculous. And most people who are in the drug world got there by having a drug habit and then needing to feed a drug habit and then they start selling and at higher and higher levels. So most people get there because they're sick. And I think we should treat drugs as a public health problem. And I think there should be a bed for everybody in this country who is sick and wants to get better. And right now, we're not anywhere close to that. Right. I've worked in reentry for a while and there's just a desperate need for places to help people heal. Secondly, I'd work inside of prison. In other nations, especially in Europe, the percentage of people who go to prison who then come back to prison is minuscule. Like one out of every six or seven people in Denmark, Sweden, Norway who go to prison go back to prison. In the United States, it's around 70%. Why? The main thing they do differently when you get to prison there, they don't strip you of your clothes and give you a uniform. They don't strip you of your name and give you a number. They don't strip you of your dignity every day. They help you find vocational opportunities and educational opportunities that will prepare you to be successful and employed in the community that you'll return to. We don't do a very good job of that in our country. In fact, we do very little of it. And then the third big bucket is reentry, providing, making sure that housing you know, firms can't discriminate against people who've been incarcerated, trying to... Uh, limit how companies can discriminate against people who have felony convictions just to try to, the playing field is never going to be level for, for, for folks who have had convictions, but to try to make it a little more level so that we don't put them further behind the eight ball. They've already struggled 
and we're sending them back to the same communities where they failed once before with all these added stigmas and obstacles. And they're probably not going to succeed unless we change that. So just wanting to humanize people throughout that whole life cycle and provide, you know, policy reforms to help them. The book is titled Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. Reminds me of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart. They said they make a movie out of this. Who plays you in the movie? Man? <laughs> well, it's funny. It was close to becoming a movie. Really? Yeah. And the guy who really wanted to do it was this guy named Max Greenfield, who's on this show called New Girl. Have you ever oh, seen New that Girl. show? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's hilarious. He's funny. Yeah. yeah. So fan. he, the night that he read the book, the, the day after he read the book, his agent called my agent and said, Max wants to talk to Jeff today. And I was on my book tour and we talked for a couple hours. Uh, and then we talked again over, over the next several weeks and it almost happened, but it didn't quite happen. But, um, it was funny because, uh, I was teaching at the time in New York city and I always do a thing with my students on the first day of class as an icebreaker where you got to say, um, wh- who your celebrity lookalike is, and then they get to vote on mine. And, uh-huh. and he started winning the votes, this guy, Max Greenfield, uh, that my kids thought, uh, my students thought that that uh, that I looked like him, so it was funny that he was into into the role. He would be the person who I think would uh, w- was was most interested in it, and we have some similarities. He was also a big basketball player, so I would go with the young Matthew Broderick. I think that would be a, a you know, I think Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I think that the similarities are are there. Um, well, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, it's been great getting to meet you, know you uh, through through Missouri politics. Yeah, and buddy. Certainly, well, your your openness to share your story. Um, you came in here. You said, "You know, nothing's off limits," and we appreciate we, we appreciate that. Uh, I tried to avoid any conversation about the orifices where I hid any of the prison food I stole, or where other people <laughs> hid things, um, other, where other inmates may have put things. No, but seriously, you didn't have any of that, did you? That didn't uh, happen, did it? I definitely did steal things, but not because I am a uh, uh, habitual, you know, thief. It was just because at one point. I was told that they were going to plant raw meat in my freezer jacket to get me in trouble because they thought that I was about to rat them out for stealing since I hadn't started stealing. Uh, yeah. Like my yeah. first week. So, you know, when hopefully it, the statute of limitations is passed. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a decade ago. No shower incidents, nothing everything was everything was fine for you. You know, I I you didn't have any the the, the, the stereotypical what you would think of prison? There's Being five foot seven, one fifteen. There are some fun moments in the book along those lines, but I'm I was very fortunate that I was not, you know, a, a victim of, sure. of uh, sexual assault or anything. It's a serious problem um, yeah. in, in our prisons in this country, and it's just one more thing that can add to the dehumanization and the trauma that people experience in there. So, you know, um, last thing I'll say just about the whole experience. We think about prisons in this country and we're like, oh, you know, out of sight, out of mind. We put them in rural areas, kind of away from everybody. We don't think much about what happens inside our prisons. But 95% of people who are incarcerated are coming back, right? right? And so to the extent that their trauma and their well-being and mental health is worsened while they're there, we will experience that we will reap what we sow right um and so we should think more about helping people heal so they can come back and be a part of our communities a part of our families part of our economic fabric uh because we can't write off millions of people 
in this country and hope to compete with China. Um, it will, you know, and we should do it, you know, for for the sake of of, of them and, and, and their children. So, um, you know, uh, I hope if if you're interested in the book, again, it's called Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. The reason I wrote it was to humanize those who are incarcerated and also let people see that, you know, there but for the grace of God go any of us. Yeah. Yeah. Very few of us have gone through life without making any mistakes. And, you know, Mark was a federal prosecutor. He was on the other side of this. Uh, I'm I'm glad to see that you um, that you can see both sides. And, well, and I shouldn't have made light of the, the, the shower because that's, I mean, truly, but that's kind of the, the ignorance of a lot of people out there. They make oh, yeah. light of it, make jokes about Prison it. And jokes. it really isn't. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of terrifying to think about. I mean, I would be fresh meat, and it would be like if I ever found myself in that situation. And you're I like, would be, and you're like twice my size. <laughs> but I would be. I mean, you know, the, the that's real sweet. I, mean, I would I would be a real. Yeah, I would think I'd be very attractive for a lot of people. So it would not be a good situation for me to find myself in. So I shouldn't make light of it. And I apologize for for doing so because, like you said, these people. You know, the more you dehumanize, the more emboldened a lot of people would be. I mean, they're the point the. The possibility for rehabilitation, I think, becomes very difficult at that point. Absolutely. And, you know, far too many people, uh, when they come home, who are the victims of those kinds of assaults in prison, um, tragically seek to reclaim the manhood that they perceive was stolen from them by then victimizing others when they come home. You know, we understand from, like, research on children and adolescents, like, cycles of violence. And so... We really are not serving our society well by allowing prisons to be violent places. I know we want to deter people, and so society mythologizes prisons as these like you know awful places where these terrible things happen. But it doesn't serve us well, and we need to have more humane facilities so that people really can again heal and get back on their feet. Thanks so much for the conversation. Absolutely, yeah, and and also when you think about the purpose of prisons, deterrence, rehabilitation, and punishment, and you know, all, all the things you talked about kind of play a role there. And, you know, I applaud your efforts. Certainly enjoy you being here. Smash, it's yep. always good to have guests in studio. Here in the Miller Furniture Studios, or Miller Furniture, M-U-E-L-L-E-R Furniture.com. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, Smash, that was great. Jeff Smith. That was. Uh, former state senator, former congressional candidate, former, uh, or I guess current felon and, and former... Uh, federal inmate. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting to hear his take and, uh, also to hear his take on the way out the door about, uh, Eric Greitens, uh, not, not a fan of him. That was heavy, man. Uh, you know, I'm, yeah. I am not a fan myself and, uh, the U S Senate race is certainly heating up. And, uh, when we were in Jeff city last week, you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of the candidates were there. Um, I'm personally pulling for Senator Dave Schatz, who I think is a guy that uh, would make a great, U.S. Senator, maybe you'd be, as, you know, somebody who could come as close to being uh, that that uh, you know, statesman-like person that you want in the U.S. Yeah. Senate. But there are other candidates that uh, that I also uh, think would be good. But it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. That that primary is in in August. Um, we got a lot going on right now. Ukraine again. We touched on that in the beginning of the show. Just heart goes out. Hopefully things can cool down all the tensions in in, in uh, that part of the world. It's it's sad to see. It's kind of unbelievable to see like two first world nations, you know, at war. I mean, I'm not sure I ever thought we'd really, really see that. And then yeah. if we did see it, I was afraid that it would end in utter catastrophe. Do you know why the USSR, why Russia invaded? I don't still get that story. So I, so again, I'm not, I'm no foreign affairs expert. Well, you but should be. The understanding is 
Putin did not want Ukraine to become a NATO country. Okay. Okay. Because once you become a NATO country, if number one, if you were to mess with a NATO country, then theoretically mess all, with NATO, everybody. all NATO countries right. become your enemy. Number two, it means that NATO troops are then Next on door. your doorstep. Yeah. And so that I think is the reason that Putin didn't want them to become a NATO country. He saw that coming closer and closer to fruition and, you know, I will credit the, the Biden administration because I think um, they released intelligence weeks ago that indicated that he was going to be mounting an invasion of Ukraine. And they did that. Oh, man, see that subway we ate earlier yeah. starting to get to me. Well, I held it off. It was one of the, the first things I told <clears throat> I didn't have to talk much, but I think ultimately they realized, uh, you know, we have to release this intelligence so that Putin can't steer the narrative and say, oh, we were attacked or there was some skirmish on a border and we had to be, you know, go in as peacekeepers. That jig is up. Everyone realizes this yeah. is a, 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 an aggression. act of aggression by Putin or whatever, whether he wants to re, you know, reinstate the USSR or the Soviet Union. I guess that's his goal. That's his dream. I think he's living in you know, fantasy land if he thinks that's going to happen. Will we stop him? I mean, Ukraine is fighting. I mean, that's what it takes. If you want to stay independent, if you want to stay free, you're going to have to stand up and fight. Right. Whether or not other countries will jump into their aid. Uh, and actually, you know, jump into the fighting will remain to be seen. But uh, it is inspiring to see guys like uh, their president, Ukrainian President Zelensky, stand up and say, I'm going to yeah. stay here. I'm going to fight it out. Unlike the that was good. the fraud from Afghanistan who, you know, <laughs> took out, you know, took, right. took off in the middle he of the night. took off, man, with all the it. money. You know, with that, all the money. As a leader, when you do that, your people aren't going to stay and fight. Yeah. And you got the Klitschko brothers, the boxers. Yeah, right. Stand there and fight. So it's inspiring. Hopefully they can hold them off and. I love uh, the Klitschkos, We man. can stay out of a you know yeah. war with Russia because it's pretty scary when you think about yeah. the last night on sixty minutes, the special on the, the grid. If that gets oh yeah, knocked, that was that's something. why that RV from Byerly yeah. is gonna be it could be a lifesaver. Yeah. You have that. Have you made arrangements to wrap, wrap it yet? <laughs> Not yet. It's in, it's in logo wrap, man. It's in the works though for sure. And we're gonna have to hit up Rosalita's uh, this afternoon. Let's go. Happy hour four to seven. For lunch, just incredible lunch at uh, Rosalita's when we have time. We had to get a quick lunch today, but we'll be get, hitting up Rosalita's for lunch for that delicious Definitely. steak appetizer, do a fajita setup, the nachos, <sighs> the margaritas, the chips and salsa. Cannot be beat. Rosalita'scantina.com, downtown or uh, on Washington Avenue. You can check them out west in De Pere on Manchester Road. Smash, good to be with you, Sally. Yep. Good to be with you. This is the Mark Milton Show with the Smash broadcasting this week from the Miller Furniture Studios. Special guest, Jeff Smith. Uh, telling his story, his that book, Mr. Smith Goes to Prison, What My Year Behind Bars Taught Me About America's Prison Crisis. Check it out on Amazon or any uh, any bookstore. Appreciate you being with us. Check yeah. us out anytime. Apple iTunes. You can download the podcast.